Has anyone been in love? Will anyone here who has been in love and been separated from the object of their love, whether it's a son or a daughter or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or wife, you know that love longs to communicate. How many of us have written love letters to someone? It's been quite some time since I've written a love letter, but I recall one time when I was courting my wife and I would send her texts or Facebook messages with various messages about how beautiful, how sweet and how fun it was that to be with her. And it wasn't long before we began to date that we moved to the next step of being a boyfriend and girlfriend. And as usually is the case, those texts and those letters became a little bit less frequent. And one day in our relationship together, we were reminiscing about this or that. And she, she said to me, you know what? You don't send those lovely texts anymore. Now, I can tell you that was a little hard to swallow. It's almost like I've been caught red-handed. And I think I'd said something along the lines of, you don't need the letters anymore. You've got the package, baby. You've got more than pen and paper. You've got the real deal of muscle and flesh. And she said something like, yeah, that's nice, but I want the letters too. She wanted her cake and she wanted to eat it too, which is fine. But the idea that love longs to communicate, if someone you love is away, you want to write letters or an email or send a text from your phone, we long to communicate with one another. When we look at the various social realities and what's interesting about this social distancing situation the people are struggling with social distancing because of loneliness and, and feeling isolated. The social landscape is shifting. And we're moving into things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and Zoom and all sorts of things. This whole idea of social networking is that people are wired to connect. People are wired to be connected. Now, who knows who Mark Zuckerberg is? Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire several times over. He's something like, he's worth something like $70 billion. And now he's the founder and creator of Facebook. Now, what's interesting is he didn't make his billions or he didn't become a billionaire because he, he created connectivity between people. He's a billionaire because he gave us a modern and meaningful way to access the connectivity that was already there. The success of Mark Zuckerberg with his founding of Facebook shows us one thing, that we as human beings are wired for connectivity. We are wired to communicate, to create, to love and be loved. The reason is the very nature, the very essence of the universe itself, both inside and outside yours and my heart, is love and connection and relationship. You and I were made to love and be loved by our Creator. Now, last time I preached, I made a simple statement that many of us are satisfied with the rind of religion and not with the juice of relationship. And I want to continue by taking you to two passages of Scripture. The first one's in John chapter 5. And the second one is in 2 Corinthians. But first, John chapter 5, the Gospel John chapter 5, we're going to find Jesus' assessment or indictment of the religious leaders of his day. Then we're going to go to a passage by Paul in 2 Corinthians and read his assessment indictment of the religious leaders in his day. 
But first, John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we find Jesus giving both a commendation and a condemnation. And he gives us a compliment. He gives them a compliment, sorry. And he gives them a warning. John 5 verse 39 says this. You search the scriptures. There's the commendation, the affirmation. He's basically saying, you guys are really religious. You are very sincere. You love to search and pour over the scriptures. You know what the Old Testament says. You know what Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel says. You guys are some serious theologians. Now watch what Jesus says after that. So he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Now, I want you to appreciate and and consider the depth and the seriousness of the charge that Jesus is laying at the feet of the religious leaders of his day. He's basically saying this, you've misunderstood your own religious book. You've misunderstood your own prophets. You've misunderstood your own Psalms. You've misunderstood your own Proverbs. You have misunderstood your own history. You don't even know who you are and you don't know you don't know your texts, you don't know the truth about your teachings. You search the scriptures and vigorously and sincerely dive into the text and analyze and exegete them, but you miss the point. The point is me. Now this is a serious allegation on two levels. It's an absolute indictment of the religious leaders of his day. And second, it's an almost incomprehensibly audacious statement to say that, you know, all of that book, that religious book that you're reading, the poems, the Proverbs, and all its prophecies are actually about me. Can you imagine somebody saying that today? The whole of the, let's say we pick up the Bible and somebody saying that whole Bible is about me. You've misunderstood it, Seventh-day Adventists. You've misunderstood it if you're in another religion as well. That whole book that you're reading is all about me. No wonder Jesus, they wanted to kill Jesus. How, how did he ever make it as long as he did was the real question. We, we think, you know, he died early at 30 odd. He lived a long time with that kind of language. He's basically saying, you guys are all about this rind of religion, the outside of the orange. But wait till you get to the inside. And I am the inside. Now, that's Jesus' indictment, that he would would be so audacious to suggest that the religious leaders had misunderstood their own faith. And I wonder here today if it's even possible for us as Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christians, is it possible that even we are in danger of misunderstanding our own faith? And just kind of like gnawing at the, at the rind of religion, thinking, oh man, how awesome is this? How great is this? This is the best thing I've ever had. When the center of religion is awaiting us and, it, and it's not even being tapped in by many of us. But let's go to this second passage by Paul in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and here Paul uses an illustration of a, of a story about Moses who went up uh, Mount Sinai. And when Moses went up Mount Sinai, he spent uh, 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says, where he didn't eat or drink. He was just hanging out in God's presence. And on one occasion, Moses says to God, hey, hey, God, show me what you're like. And God responds by saying, I'll show you what I'm like. 
But I have to do three things. I have to put you in the cleft of the rock. I have to cover your, cover you, so you can, so you can't see my face, and you can only see my back because if you see my face, you will die. Now Paul is going to use that story in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse thirteen, and he's going to make an application for it. So Second Corinthians chapter three, verse thirteen through to sixteen says this: Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, this veil is taken away. What is all that language about? Well, you know, many of us might remember the story of Moses who came down the mountain after spending 40 days and 40 nights hanging out with God and the children of, children of Israel saw his face and it was a glow. It was shining with some incandescent radiance that, that was so bright. It was hurtful to the eyes of the children of Israel and they made a request of Moses. They said, hey, Moses, put a veil on your face. You've been in God's presence. We haven't been in God's presence. We've been down here in darkness and you are just too bright for us to look at. How many of us one morning have, have opened our eyes to see the, the sunlight just uh, uh, shining directly through our window onto our faces and it's just so bright we have to cover our eyes with our pillow and cover or cover it with a blanket. It's just too bright for us to look at. And so Paul uses this illustration here and he says, he says, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was veiled. They had to veil his face. And Paul knows good and well that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he says, just like Moses put a veil over his face and people couldn't see Moses in a similar way today, when the Jews or, or perhaps even when we read, our, read the Bible or the Old Testament, when we, when we go to the writings of Moses and when we read the entirety of the Old Testament, he says, you can't read it because a veil lies over your face. And then he says, but this veil can be removed. This veil that prevents the Jews and prevents us from understanding, you know, the poems, understanding the Psalms, understanding the Proverbs, the prophecies, even uh, the Jews' own history, this veil can be removed. And according to the text, how is this veil removed? Well, it says it right there. The veil is taken away in Christ. In other words, when those first century Jews would go to read the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in fact, the entirety of the Old Testament, it was though they had brand new glasses on and these glasses were seeing everything, not with the Jewish nation at the center, not with the Jewish sanctuary at the center, not with the Jewish rites and rituals and unique laws and food laws at the center. It was seeing all these things with Jesus at the center. And as soon as you put Jesus where he belongs, the veil is taken away. Both Jesus and Paul's indictment of the first century Jews and their way of thinking was, you've misunderstood your own faith. You've misunderstood your own religion. What's interesting is we as Seventh-day Adventists have something very similar in our own history. 
As many of you might know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was founded in 1863. However, it began earlier than that, and it grew out of something called the Great Disappointment when a Baptist preacher named William Miller began to preach the coming of Jesus in 1844. And after this event, when Jesus didn't return in 1844, and many were discouraged and, they, and, and went their various ways, there were, there were some that began to study the Bible more deeply, and many of these people would become known and what we call today Seventh-day Adventists. Now, as these Seventh-day Adventists began to study the Bible, they came across a number of truths that they thought were really important and are important. For example, they came across something called the Sabbath and, and found out that not only is it significant, but it, 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 it's Saturday, and hence they became known as the Seventh-day Adventists. They also learned that there were certain things that you should or shouldn't put into your body. And they learned that when you die, you don't ascend straight to heaven or you don't go straight to a place called hell where you burn. Rather, you sleep a sleep of death and you await the resurrection. They began to find all these really, this really powerful stuff from the Bible. And as they found out these truths, they wanted to tell the world. So there was these Adventist preachers, many of them were quite young, even teenagers in fact, and they would, they would walk or get on their horse and travel from town to town, community to community, and they would begin to preach this new message, this Adventist message. And it was all really wonderful from the get-go. But a lady by the name of Ellen White made a diagnosis of the early preachers of the Advent movement, who would... Who would come to a town and they'd, and they'd set up a hall and they'd, or set up a tent and they'd invite people to come and, and they might set up a chart or something and kind of talk about some various topics and they began to preach and teach uh, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and, or something else in the scriptures. This was, this was her very interesting diagnosis of that situation. She says this, We have not held up before the people the righteousness of Christ and the full significance of His great plan of redemption. We have left out Christ. She's saying that we haven't even been preaching Christ. We haven't been even preaching Jesus. We show up from town to town, village to village, community to community, and we've left out Christ. Well, she continues, we've left out Christ and His matchless love. Well, the question has to be asked, what have we been preaching then? If we haven't been preaching Jesus, then, then what, were, what was the early Adventist preachers preaching then? Well, she, she actually tells us. She says, we've left out Christ and his matchless love, brought in theories and reasonings and preached something called argumentative discourses. You see, the primary purpose and the primary objective of many of those, those young Adventist preachers was to prove the Sunday keepers wrong, to prove the pork eaters wrong, to prove the people that believe in the immortality of the soul wrong, to prove people wrong. And so what's interesting is that Ellen White saw it and Paul saw it and Jesus saw it. And they say essentially this, all of them together, they say, you guys have misunderstood your own religion, misunderstood your own songs, misunderstood your own history, misunderstood your own prophecies, misunderstood your own poems. And Jesus would go one step further than the other two. And, and he would say, not only have you missed what is right, 
I am what it is all about. And I'll say it again. No wonder they tried to kill him. No wonder he he would eventually be killed because that's not only rebellious talk, that's revolutionary talk. And here, as we continue as a church, we'll be taking an in-depth look at this covenantal beauty and the covenantal picture of God and who He is and what He has done for each of us. The truth of the matter is, there is no better place for us to start and continue our journey together as a church than here. God is love. Being dissatisfied with this rind of religion and saying, I want the juicy, sweet goodness of what's inside the orange. How many of you will say with me, I want more than the rind of religion. I want Jesus Christ to be my way of life.